Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined by Brandon from the Go Bearcats Podcast. Brandon, how are you doing today, sir? I mean, the Bearcats won, and as listeners of this podcast are used to hearing, it is a great day to be a Bearcats fan. Look, if Hummer's going to refuse to say it, if he's going to refuse to come on here and and tell the people what they need to hear, which is that it is, in fact, still a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcats fan, then, then someone's got to fill his shoes. And I appreciate you doing that today, Brandon. You're right. The Bearcats are back in the win column after a, a tough and polarizing loss to Tulane earlier this week. Followed it up with a Saturday evening victory over the not-so-formidable South Florida Bulls. However, the Bearcats did go into halftime of this game down by four. I think it was 38-34 at halftime. They end up winning the game by a score of 84-65. to It was a runaway in the second half. But as is, as we've become accustomed, this team does not perform in a linear way. You've got ups and downs. You, you've got times and stretches of basketball where they look phenomenal, where they look like they've started to channel something. And then you've got stretches of basketball that can be abysmal to watch. This was an interesting game because we went into the game without Victor Locken, who I'm on the record saying is easily by far the most important player for this team. He's not available due to the ankle injury. That's not necessarily a surprise given the the severity of that turn and the fact that the Bulls are a very bad team. It's a home game. We should still outclass that team. We're going on the road against East Carolina next. I would imagine he might be sitting out that game as well. Based on that, based on the knowledge of, of Vic Locken's absence coming into this game, how do you how do, what are your takeaways here, high level, Brandon, with regard to the Bearcats' performance? Well, I think, you know, I mean, the, the first half left a lot to be desired, whether that's on the defensive end that we, we can talk about. Um, and it took us a while to get things going offensively as well. Uh, you know, high level view when you have your, you know, your centerpiece of the team out for a game like this, uh, you leave it up to the role players to sort of, you know, embrace the challenge of being the next guy up. You hear that you hear that a lot in football, not as much as basketball. But, but um, I mean, uh, Kalua getting the start over JD, I thought was interesting uh, to, to keep that his you know what his being Wes Miller's rotation going or keep it in the flow that that they have it. Um, and then you know I'm I am the president of the Odio Guama fan club. He stepped up in, in a big way tonight as, as well. Uh, continuing his starting role that, that he's been in for a while now. So uh, I, I think you just got to look at the role players to to take that leap and take on the responsibility to fill the shoes of the clock and which took a while for him to find the groove. But finally, in the second half, uh, you know, they got things going, especially offensively. The interesting thing about Odio Guama, like he, he had a remarkable game today. He was he was nine and nine from the floor, 18 points five boards the sneaky takeaway what got lost in this two lane performance earlier in the week you know a lot of the conversation was about the execution down the stretch or lack thereof it was about not closing a game that you lead by seven with two and a half minutes left but you know what we 
what we're probably losing sight of is the fact that he had a phenomenal game against Tulane. Like he filled in for Vic Lockin and, and did so incredibly admirably. Um, in, in that game, I think he scored 16 points. He grabbed 13 rebounds. And he shot, I think, 60% from the floor, maybe 6 to 10 from the floor. I mean, this was, and we were throwing the ball into him and he was finishing. And for anybody who has watched this team consistently this year, Odio Guama around the rim looked like he had the the yips. He looked like he was, you know, uh, uh, terrified when the ball came to him in the paint. And so to see him overcome whatever was happening with him catching the ball down low to, hey, now the team really needs me. Our best player is out. The ball's going to come my way. They need they, We need an entry point for the ball down low. It's been remarkable to see what he's done the last two games. And it's basically, this is the Odio Guama I think a lot of us pictured when he came here from Wake Forest. I thought he would do a much better job supplementing the production we were expecting from a guy like Tari Eason. And it, it didn't come to fruition. It wasn't even close. He, he was not a replacement for that talent of player. But he, these two games are an example of, oh, wow, he ha- he does have this level or, or something like this in him. And it makes a it makes a big difference for the team's outlook. It, it definitely does. I mean, I had, you know, late in the game, I tweeted out, this is the Odeo Guama game, ladies and gentlemen. And I, I that was actually a tweet that I, I had in the drafts during the <laughs> Tulane game. How do we win that game? You know, like I was I was taking notice there, you know, the double double, I think much more impressive. Uh, but then, you know, he, he kind of outdid himself tonight, at least on the offensive uh, end with that. But, I mean, I, I mean, he's just kind of – I think, you know, the yips is a good way to put it. You know, not, I mean, it's harsh. It's, 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 to be it's honest, harsh, it's, it's probably unfair. It's probably unfair to even speculate if it is or not. It, it apparently is not. But that's what it looked like. Like, that's it, what it felt it like, like watching him. He was wide open in the paint, and he would double, triple clutch when all he had to do was just take it up and dunk it. Like there, I mean, that was like easily visible for anyone watching the game. Uh, but I mean, his energy is unmatched. I think the, the only guy on the team that would would match his energy in a game is John Newman, who obviously, you know, we haven't had this season. Uh, you know, putting those both of those guys on the floor at the same time, I, I would like to see now just because of, of the energy that they bring. And if, you know, you can get a 15 to 20 points from, from Odie, on any given night kind of changes the conversation a little bit for, for what this Bearcats team can do. Vic Locken was someone who was irreplaceable to me based on the lack of production we got from Kalua Zikbe and based on the fact that Odia Guama had not developed year over year. And with Vic out most of the Tulane game out in this South Florida game, he's replicated that production and been a guy that David DeJulius and Nolly and Micah could find down low and count on him to grab it with two hands and finish around the rim. And that's, you know, Odie Oguama going nine of nine in a basketball game is not something I would have predicted. It would have been like my 1030th prediction on the season. Like if you're like wild predictions, that is not something that would ever cross my mind as being possible. Now we, we are kind of, heaping praise on, on the good in this game and that's Odie Oguama. And, and there was other good, the first half of the South Florida game to me was a bit of a carryover from some of the problems we saw in the Tulane game. Now sure. against Tulane, the Bearcats scored hundred. They scored 94 points, gave up 101. It was an overtime game. 
but the, the wheels absolutely came off in the second half of that game. And against South Florida, a team that was incredibly unimpressive, even when they were going into the half up 38-34, this was a team that was breaking shots, very putrid execution. Like they, they didn't really look like a threat to me, yet here you have um, Corey Walker Jr. putting up like a, a ridiculous career high in this game. I think he finished with around 25 points. He averages under three a game. I like listening now to Dan Horde and Terry Nelson during bits of these games and Dan was beside himself, like calling every miss, every made three, every every made layup by by Walker in this game. The the Bearcats were a bit all over the place in the first half defensively. And honestly, we did a Twitter spaces with the Viva La Cats guys after that two lane game. We probably did not talk about the defense enough after that performance. Yeah, I mean, we I, I mean, we and I was I was only on there for a, uh, for you know uh, a minute or so, but you know I, I think we talked about the uh, the offensive explosion that Tulane went for in the second half. Um, what they have twenty eight points or something at halftime, or you know something, and then they just the, the wheels fell off defensively. Um, and, and but everything was you're right, everything was circled around the uh, the poor shot selection offensively uh, in the end of regulation in the beginning of of half or overtime of that game. Uh, and I think it was right. I think, uh, you know, it, if you were watching the uh, ESPN Plus broadcast at halftime, they interviewed Wes Miller, uh, and it was probably the shortest halftime interview I've, I've seen in quite some time where the reporter asked him, you know, what do you got to do to, you know, what do you got to do in the second half to get the to get the lead back? And he just simply said, we got to play better defense and walked off. Uh, and I, I think defensively, they, they were much more – they had more active hands in the second half. They – I mean, rotations defensively were, were a little bit better. It seemed like they had locked in a little bit more uh, defensively. And you saw that, uh, you know, steals or, or turnovers turn into easy buckets for us in the second half. Defense is interesting. You know, I think we've spent decades, literally decades, watching really good defensive college basketball from the Cincinnati Bearcats program. Like, that's what our calling card is. It's like what we're five. accustomed to. Right. It's like a top five defense over the last 30 years of college basketball it was like us Uh, in virginia forever correct you know this and you know people harp on the the type of talent that mick cronin was bringing into this program and even bob huggins at the end of his tenure like it wasn't like he they these guys weren't building these winning seasons through four stars and five stars consistently it was a mix a mixing and mashing mishmash of like of maybe a four star here and there a very occasional five-star, but then a lot of three-star guys and unheralded guys who Cronin and Huggins could get to buy into a, a team culture of defense first, low turnover basketball, execution, right? Not making silly mistakes, not beating ourselves, making another team, you know, hit tough shot after tough shot after tough shot. And that's some that's simply not something we've had the past few seasons and this season in particular has is for the like at the beginning part of the season non-conference schedule was really really bad and they play a lot they play a fast style of basketball there's a lot of possessions so it can be deceiving conference play has been better overall but there's lapses with this team that we're simply not accustomed to as as bearcat fans and the reason i referenced cronin and huggins a minute ago is that you can typically put together a really good cohesive team defense without the most talented guys. 
Like defense isn't one of those things that you need, you know, remarkably talented players or even remarkably athletic players to have a, a team concept that works and holds teams down and doesn't give up open layups or backdoor cuts or, or have, you know, broken rotations. Like that's something that we, you can have and really does come down to coaching and, and then players executing that strategy. What do you think? Why do you think West Miller hasn't been able to find his footing from like a consistency standpoint when it comes to defense? Cause you see a half against central Florida where they hold them to like 20 points. You'll see a half against, South Florida, where they're they're holding them to twenty seven points in the second half, but we're not putting full games together. What do you what do you point to for that? I mean, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't I don't know what Wes Miller's defensive philosophy is. I knew what Mick Cronin was. He was going to play the matchup zone and make sure the guys were in the right spots to play that. And if you couldn't figure that out, you weren't going to play. Right? Um, I don't. I don't know if I've heard Wes Miller describe his philosophy. I don't know if he has one. I don't know if I've just missed something uh, along the way. You know, I, I pay you know uh, close attention, probably you know more so than you know the casual fan. But I couldn't tell you what his philosophy is defensively. Have I missed something along the way? <laughs> you know, and it's not a knock. I love I, I love Wes Miller. I I need him to be successful here. In in 2050, I need to see him with his wrinkles and gray hairs on the sideline, you know, as a Bearcat. Still, you know, like I we I think we all need him to to make this work. So it's not like I am uh, I'm anti West Miller here, but I I don't know if I could answer that question on his behalf. So I I think back to when he was hired, and there is a defensive philosophy there that. I don't think that he's been executing or been able to execute with this Bearcats roster. And I think, you know, a lot of people attribute the lack of offensive execution or creativity to roster. I think I would actually say maybe defensively it's been more relevant. You know, when he came to to Cincinnati, I I wrote a blurb based on some research I had done through other sources, like people who had covered West Miller in the past. Justin Williams did some reporting on this, but he was known to to mix in a one two two zone press. Um, he's someone who 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 prided himself on the defensive end at UNCG, right? Like it was, a, I think it was a heavy a heavy dose of man uh, man defense. We've seen that with the Bearcats. There's definitely an apprehension to switching to zone. He likes mm-hmm. man defense. He likes pressing, but we haven't seen press, and we haven't seen a man defense that holds up against even American athletic competition. So there's a disconnect there. I think this is someone who wants to kind of get after it, play fast tempo, press teams, turnover teams. He hasn't necessarily done that. I do think it is more difficult when you have small point guards, which we've had with Mike Saunders jr. With David DeJulius, um, you know, even David DeJulius's counterpart in the backcourt is Mike, Micah Adams woods. Like it might not be a roster that is easy to press with because of the lack of length. So that could be something that we see evolve over time. But to me, that's been one of the more disappointing aspects. Maybe the most disappointing aspect is defensively not really being a calling card of this team and not being able to count on it game in, game out. See, I don't like even like, so, I mean, we have to Julius, you know, if, if he's not the the model or the mold for the, for this defense, you know, why go after a guy like fantasy? And then this, I, I'm, I'm not going to remember his name. Is this the shorter, like six foot, 
Day Day Thomas. Day Day Thomas is another small point guard, right? right. Like this so is like, that's not a pressing guard. Right. Not not at all. So like is it is it a personnel issue? If that's like you know, that's who we have, that's who we went and got in the transfer portal, and that's who we we've, we've signed again. Yeah, I, I think for an average fan, and and I follow the team extremely closely, so but I, I think of myself as an average fan. Like I'm not an expert X's and O's guy. But when I talk about, it's easier for me to talk about what's happening offensively because it's like just staring me smack in the face. Like, but but on I say that, and even thinking about it as, as the words are coming out of my mouth here, like defensively, it's obvious at times if something's wrong. Like, there's just you shouldn't be giving up as many layups as we give up, mm-hmm. and teams do consistently get in the paint on us, and and there do seem to be breakdowns and backdoor, you know, get guys getting backdoored. Like there is a lack of attention to detail on that end of the court that has been staring us straight in the face for the last two seasons. I mean, anytime, anytime the other team has a, a player that's going to look to post up Jeremiah Davis, like Davenport, I mean, Jer- anytime they're going to post up Davenport, you, you're going to have to send another guy to help. Like that should be. Automated. Yeah. So and that, but that's part of the reason I think I've let it slide a little defensively is like, I can look at Jeremiah Davenport and say that he's a guy who would not play under our prior coaches. Like that's a guy who, whose defensive breakdowns would simply not be tolerated. But the fact that West does feel compelled to play him. And I think there's some truth to it. Like he has to see the court on this roster. He is one of the best seven guys on the team. But when you're leaning on a guy like that, who does consistently break down the way he does defensively, I'm sort of building in like a a curve. I'm grading you on a curve at that point. It's hard to coach around Jeremiah Davenport's defense. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. Now, Now, the reason for optimism, and and I I thought about the podcast I recorded with uh, Mitch from Canada, we were, that was a pretty positive tone we took, and it was because we started seeing some steps forward in terms of defensive basketball. We saw stretches of more impressive, you know, uh, performance on the defensive end of the court. You know, you see... You see that the low scoring halves, you see us making it more difficult for our opponents. And it wasn't necessarily for four, for a full 40 minutes, but it was in more consistent stretches than we've grown accustomed to. And we saw it reflecting in the results. You saw us, obviously the Houston game could be chalked up largely to our hot shooting in the first half, but we were competing defensively a lot better in that game. You saw us competing defensively against Memphis. Like I, I actually thought our losses in those games could be chalked up more to a lack of offensive execution than defensive. And because of that, if if your defense starts traveling game to game, we're going to be winning more consistently. And that's why after the Central Florida win, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, let's make a run of this, go five and two down the stretch at least, and, and finish as a two seed or finish as a three seed. And and really like look at this objectively and say, we made a, a big jump forward in terms of quality of play year over year. Plenty of grapes still to be had offensively, but if our defense starts showing up regularly, I can start picturing a world where we we match up better against good teams because all of a sudden we're actually defending them and we're actually making life hard for them. And that's where I could start picturing some winning, you know, some big wins down the line. Tulane was a was a, a huge step back. Like it really it it fucked with my head because of how bad the performance was against Tulane. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at to kind of go back to the Houston game, 
I mean, and you can roll that right into the Tulane game in the first half of this game. Like if you're, if the threes aren't falling, the medicine is not to keep chucking them up. Right. Like, I, I mean, if tonight is, uh, shows us anything, even, I mean, with Vic especially, but even, even if we don't have him with Oguama and, uh, Azipke, we have guys in the, that can finish around the rim. Right. We have even, I thought at times tonight that, um, that Landers looked to, to get to the rim a little bit more. Yes. Right? Like, we can get to the rim. We can, you can. We can do that. And that is the, the answer is not to, to chuck it up from deeper. Right. You no. Know? And that's what, that's what happened. Like in the Houston game, we were hot in the first half, went cold, if you will, in the second. And we didn't adjust to, to get the ball in the paint to, to execute to keep the lead. Right. Getting the ball in the paint takes a, con- a concerted effort. Yeah. Like absolutely. it is, it is harder to get the ball in the paint than it is to pass the ball around the perimeter two or three times and then jack up a 22 to 23, fo- 24 foot three pointer. Like it is, it's just objectively harder to get the ball in the paint. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. Right. David DeJulius, Landers Nolly, Micah Adams Woods. I don't I don't think of any of them as elite drivers of the basketball. I don't think of them as elite in those areas. But it doesn't mean they can't do it. They obviously can do it because we've seen them do it before, but there's a lack of consistency in doing it that is a detriment to our offense and it leads us to settle and into these ridiculously bad habits when games tighten up. And we saw that against Tulane and I I thought that the final two minutes and 30 seconds of that game were a microcosm of Wes Miller's offense, that high leverage, high stress, the players are tightening up and they fall back on the habit of, okay, we're, we're going to shoot a three and, and hopefully we make it. And there are games where some of them go in and we pull it out and people keep it moving. But the reality is what if Micah Adams Woods had made his pull up 19 uh, seconds on the shot clock three and we win the game like it doesn't make it a good shot it it wasn't a good shot it was a really bad shot and frankly on the final five possessions of that game four or five of them were really bad the one I was willing to tolerate was Mike Adams Woods getting into the paint kicking it back out to Landers Nolly who shot a a quick and semi-contested three but it was at least it was inside out we had gotten the ball inside. Mike Emswood's kicking it back out. The other the other possessions, there was nobody stepping a foot inside the three-point line. It was pass it around a couple of times, jack it up, or David DeJulius, isolation, step back 25-footer. Like, the whole thing was a disaster. And and I felt it it warranted – that. that's a, refle- a reflection to me of the coach. Like, that's purely coaching at that point. Kumar, I want – I want you to pay attention to or, or all the slang and fans listening. When we get an offensive board, watch what happens next. I, I tried to pay close attention to that this game because I think some of the most egregious shots that we take is after an offensive rebound, right? So you got Odie, Nolly, whoever, pick your offensive rebounder. They almost never go right back up with it. Right, that's it's never catch the ball, make a move, go back up for a six footer. It's almost always 
kick out, and it's an immediate shot. Nothing, I, nothing to, to get to the rim, no sort of movement. It's whoever happens to be the one that catches the ball is almost always going to shoot it. That's, that's something that, that I watched for closely tonight, and I almost couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's, it's not great. It's no. not great. And, and, and against Tulane, I think I did. I ran the numbers. It was between 57 and 57, 57 and 58 percent of our shots in that game were three pointers. You know, the team was was just chucking. There wasn't effort to get the ball inside. And they did make a lot of three pointers, actually, in that game. And they and they had a seven point lead and there was had the opportunity to close it. But it was it's obvious looking at it like that's not a sustainable style of basketball. This isn't something real. We have to do way better than this. We should expect better than this. And the second half against South Florida, to me, is evidence that this team can work the ball inside. They can get two feet in the paint. You could get two feet in the paint by screening and rolling with Odie at the top of the key with David Julius fighting him inside. And that's why he's shooting nine and nine from the field. He's not shooting jumpers. He's finishing at the rim. You could get two feet of the paint with Micah Adams woods driving multiple times inside the lane and kicking out to a wide open David Daniel skillings jr. Who I was destroying last game for his shot selection, transition threes, isolation threes off the dribble threes. No, in this game against South Florida in the second half, he was catching the ball in rhythm, no dribbles, pull up, swish twice. His shot looked way better, infinitely better aesthetically just by not having him go off the dribble and just by Mike Adams Woods getting inside the lane and kicking out. And so when I comment online about this fascinating debate on the BCJ podcast between Simone and Brendel, and the fact that that Simone is like me and a lot of fans who are like, what the hell did we just watch against Tulane? And, and Brendel's pushing back that we just don't have downhill guys. We don't have guys who can get in the lane. It, that's not, that's just not accurate. We have guys who can get into the lane. I'm not going to call them elite rim finishers. They're not right. We, Mike Adams Woods is well-documented to not be able to finish over bigs in the lane. David DeJulius is not a guy who likes finishing at the rim but they can get into the paint. You can't attack the paint. You can't put more pressure on a defense than two passes around the perimeter and shooting a 23 footer. Yeah. I mean, and then I, you know, I've, you know, I, I'm right there with you on, on this crusade. I, I mean, and I, and I posted on, on social media, you know, we, we threw up 48 three pointers against Tulane. 48 tonight, 23 way different result, right? Offensively. And, you know, and you sort to so I, I think that's evidence, if not proof, that less three pointers is a good thing. Working the ball into the paint, thinking first, how can we work inside out with this team with the roster that we have has to be number one priority. I it, think I think it's it's on it was on of the course. Two games. Is it, Brandon, is it that isn't that the strategy of almost any team? Like even the best. I think about the best three-point shooting teams and how they're built. And you can think about it at the professional level, the college level. Like you see teams that are heliocentric with Luka Doncic, LeBron James, James Harden. Like those teams, you can't mimic that at the college level. But my point is those teams are built around these special players who are able to get into the lane and then kick it out for the three-point shot. Like the... 
the devastation of the three-point shot doesn't come from isolation, hero ball, pull-ups. It comes from breaking down a defense, getting the ball inside the lane, forcing rotations, and then finding open shooters who are catching and shooting in rhythm. And tonight in the second half against South Florida, kudos to Wes, because to me, he watched what happened against Tulane and said, well, we can't keep doing that. That's not that's not high-efficiency basketball. That's not winning basketball. Guys, we need to come out in the second half of this game and get the ball inside. And so very first possession of the second half, what do you see? Post up to Landers Nolly, quick spin. He smokes the layup, but he got a layup, right? It was a, a, a money shot. That's a great shot. Second time down the court, get the ball inside to Odio Guama, short jump hook, cash. Third possession is a fast break. Get another layup. I think I forget who finished it, but it was a layup in transition. And then I think Odio Guama got another short, short feed down low for the first four possessions of the second half for getting the ball inside. Wes Miller knows this. This isn't revelatory. It's not controversial. This team needs to be getting the ball inside first and foremost and working the offense from there. And tonight they did in the second half, and it was beautiful. You know, a name that we haven't brought up yet this evening and it's actually the first time he's seen minutes for I don't know since I think uh Justin Williams said since like beginning of January into December and that's that's Hensley right that's a guy that I mean if w- say whatever you want about him but he's a guy that wants to put the ball on the floor and get to the rack it's true right? it's out of control at times but it's true it is uh, but that's that, that's if we could we need more of that is the point there, you know, whatever, you know, the being shorthanded causing him to get some minutes, uh, you know, an unrelated thought. I would like to see more Josh Reed, but Hensley is, is a guy that wants to get the ball to the rim, not settle for a, for a jump shot. Agreed. And the beauty of this, if they can sort of capture what they did in the second half here, it's always harder against good teams too. Like we're playing a 10 and 15 USF team. That's, that's really not good. Yeah, They're not threatening and- themselves. I think, right. Were they? I, I on on the broadcast they kept saying that like that one of their their like their foreman or, or someone was was filling in for someone. I, I don't know the roster that well, but I, I feel as though they had they had at least one guy that they were missing. Well, there you go, a shorthanded USF team. Like it's not the it's not a measuring stick per se, but it was. We've played bad basketball against bad teams. Like we don't we we will outgun them based on having more talent. But that to me in the second half was pure execution. I actually thought the execution was good. I thought we shot seven of ten from three, which is not a it's not a percentage we're going to replicate game in game out. But they were good shots. You know, I saw Jeremiah take one that he he actually made a bad shot. Right, like one of those threes was definitely a heat check. It was not disciplined. It was classic Jeremiah Davenport. He switched it. Fine, like that. That's that's one example. But the the Daniel Skillings threes in rhythm. Um, David DeJulius was was hitting an in rhythm three. Mike Adams Woods hit an in in rhythm three. So I'm not I'm not Mister Don't Take Three Pointers. That's not the message I'm conveying. I'm I'm a proponent of get in the paint. Get feet in the paint. Break defenses down. Put pressure on a defense. If it leads to a layup, great. If it leads to an open three-pointer, great. But put pressure on the defense. Don't bail them out by settling for these trash three-pointers. I mean, yeah, and you're. I mean, you're going to get to the line more often by doing that. Draw more fouls. Exactly. Yeah, you're. You're going. I mean, 
you're going to you're going to open up the three point shot as well because eventually the defense has to dig down or, or sink into the paint if you can make the shots right. I mean, we saw like what Nolly had like 13 and 10 tonight. Could have easily went for over 20 if he had because he. I think there was a more concerted effort to post him up, and if he could make some of the make some more of those shots, you know, he's he's it's not going to be that close even in the first half. But yeah, I mean, it's there's. I don't want to. I don't want to like say it like this, but there's almost there's nothing bad that's going to happen by by throwing the ball into the paint or or working it inside out. You know, it, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confident in saying that with this roster. Yeah, I think I think some of the most brilliant minds in the history of basketball talk about getting the ball inside, and some and the greatest basketball players we've ever seen like getting the ball inside, and if it's not always scoring either. It's not always scoring. It's putting pressure on the defense relentlessly. And that's what we want to see tonight. One stat we didn't reference. I'm not usually, I'm, I like stats, but I don't like just reciting them on a podcast. This team had 24 assists on 31 baskets, 24 assists on 31 baskets. And I, I suspect a lot of that came in the second half. Honestly, it was beautiful basketball in the second half. Some of the best we've seen very bad opponent, all the caveats on the world. That's what we want to see. That's what you can expect. Like, don't don't allow yourself to be convinced that this team doesn't have the players in place right now to execute an offense that puts pressure on a defense and gets in the paint. We do. We have the guys on the team right now, and they'll get better. We'll, we'll recruit over the top of some of these guys. We'll bring in more talented players. It'll look even better, but we have to put pressure on a defense. You can't just jack threes for the sake of jacking threes. So here we are. 17 and nine, I believe eight and five in conference now with, uh, let's see, five games remaining. Keith Jenkins sent a cheeky tweet out that pointed out that the Bearcats were 17, nine last season before finishing the season with five consecutive losses. Now Bearcats are going on the road on the 15th at East Carolina, then at UCF on the 19th followed by a home game against Temple, on the road against Memphis, home game against SMU. Vic Locken's status is obviously in flux. His presence will certainly come into play and matter, especially as we get into matchups against the likes of Temple and Memphis. But where's your head at with this final stretch and expectations and and what you're really looking for? You know, in, in one of our Twitter spaces, I, I was pretty optimistic. I think uh, at the twelve and four record, I think when when you asked me this last time, uh, and and it was alive and well there. I think after the the Central Florida game, Tulane not so much. I mean, you know, when we get Vic back it is going to be kind of the key to that. You know, will we see him back? It's got to be at least. I hope. I mean, hopefully, Central Florida or or, or the very latest Temple three days later, you know, if, if he's out for the Memphis game, that's bad news bears for us. Um, you know, I think East Carolina is 500 right now. They are not good. They, they had a, they just lost to South Florida. They just, they just lost to South Florida. I know their, their out of conference schedule was, was pretty weak as well. Um, that, to me, that, to me, I'm looking at rest Vic. I, I'm fine if we let Vic rest that ankle for that game and yeah. you bring it back on the 19th 
which means he would have gone, you would have injured the ankle on what was the date? The eighth? Seventh. Seventh. So he injures the ankle on the seventh. You bring him back nearly two weeks later. Mm. Maybe he's maybe he's in a better spot for that for that uh that game at Central Florida. I think it would be be big to have him. But to me, the the big we're building toward the conference tournament here, so it is important to let him rest up and get healthy, even if it's at the detriment of of a game or two. Yeah. Um. I, I still think there's an opportunity to close the season strong because I don't think we're playing a very difficult schedule here down the stretch. Obviously, South Florida, the expectation was a win. I would say going to East Carolina, even without Vic, I think the expectation there is a win. Central Florida is a tougher opponent. They have fallen off in conference play. With Victor Locken, I would I would certainly expect a victory. And without, I think you're looking at a, a kind of 50-50 call there. Because I, I don't think, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think Cody Oguama's going 9 of 9 every game. I'm not sure, but I, I think it seems unlikely. Would be big if he did. Big, big. Hey, if he's just not going to miss shots anywhere, that's a big development. Um, I do think, you know, all jokes aside, seeing them make this concerted effort to get Odie the ball in, in positions where he could just catch and finish, we have to do the same thing when Vic comes back. You know, yeah. I, I envision next year's Vic being someone that you throw the ball into and you can get some facilitation from that position, but he's still a too, a little too weak with the ball right now to catch and look around and find an open guy. Like he's not great at it still at this point, just with, with the hands, but catching and finishing he's, he could do that all day. And yeah. so this is more, uh, more evidence that we had in the second half here that that starting inside with Victor Locken is our option a, and really should be our option B and then build out from there and allow the guards to work off that, that action. A hundred percent. I mean, and just to, to go on, off your original question here, I think minimum you got to go three and two down the stretch here. I think, I, you know, you gotta, you gotta beat East Carolina. It doesn't matter. It's, it's East Carolina. You uh, SMU is not good. There's, you know, that's a home game. That's a win. Yeah. Senior night. Exactly. You got, and then you got to find a win between Memphis temple and central Florida. Uh, I mean, temple worked us pretty well. I thought in the first game, I think they're a, they're a really good team that underachieves. I mean, they, they beat Houston this year, probably the best win in the conference for anyone out outside, outside of Houston. Houston. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was impressive, um, and, it, and it won me a, a decent chunk of change as well. Uh, I will admit, but I, I think you you got to beat Temple or Central Florida, Memphis. I, I, it was a close first game, but I, I'm not confident of that at Memphis at all. So you, you got to go three and two, and you got to you got to find a way to to beat either Central Florida or Temple. I mean, and obviously, obviously, I would take both, but you got to find a way to beat one of them. I like that as a benchmark. Three and two, which would be that would mean the final seven games we would have gone four and three, which is not my five and two, but honestly, with the Vic Locken injury mixed in there, that, that yeah, that's that's a, a different development. You gotta, and, and already the huge lost opportunity that we have with Tulane, because even with the Vic Locken injury, to me, that the reason I couldn't point to that injury being the deciding factor was the fact that you've got the seven point lead, three minutes left, two and a half minutes left, like that. You got you got the ball with ten seconds. You got yeah, and that too. That too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say overall a very positive game because of that second half. The first half, um, for as good as the second half was, the first half was was quite bad. But to me, 
that was one of the best halves of bas- basketball we've seen from the Bearcats. The assist numbers don't lie. The the consistent, unrelenting <laughs> effort. It was it it was an effort to just establish dominance inside, mm-hmm. and it it was it was proof of concept that it can be done, and and proof that we should continue to expect that. Like ignore the idea. Don't think about it as finishing at the rim and driving for the sake of scoring. Think about it as driving for the sake of breaking down the defense and whatever shot comes from that, be it layup, be it mid range, be it three pointer is the better option than passing around the perimeter and settling for jumpers, stand still jumpers. That's just not, that's not winning basketball. You're preaching to the choir here. All right, Brandon, on that note, I don't think I have much more to say in terms of this game. I'm I'm excited that we're back on the winning pathway. I'm excited that Victor Locken is on the mend and on his way back soon. Um, any final thoughts for for Bearcat fans? You know, I, I, I don't have I don't have any, you know, parting words of wisdom. Um, you know, Coomer with one of these where we got two home games left. We got Temple and and SMU. Uh, let's let's find a way to either go to the game or or have some beers together and watch one of them. I'm down. I'm in. Hold me, hold me to that. Um, we'll grab some beers and watch these game to get these games together, folks. You can find Brandon's work at Go Beer Cats. Um, the the Twitter handle is at Go Beer Cats. If you search Go Beer Cats on any of your podcast platforms, you will find his podcast, which is is quite enjoyable wide variety of guests it's actually a solo effort with guests so uh it's kind of what mine is turning into since hummer bailed but uh <laughs> go go check out his work it's really good uh, i'm excited to keep working with you here in the future brandon and anything else you want to plug before i let you go uh i mean there's there's the the blog, the blog, as well, the blog itself. Com. i'm actually dropping a, a new post uh tomorrow which is Sunday, every time I go to a new brewery, I write a little review of it. Hence, beer cats, right? Bear cats and, and beers is what we're all about. So, uh, I went to Beerkus earlier today in, in Ludlow, Kentucky for the first time. So, I got a little uh, write up I'm going to drop tomorrow uh, after my visit there. So, check that out. Well, one of the quirks of your podcast is you'll talk about what you're drinking during that episode. And I do see you're, you're sipping on something now. So, what was the beer of today's episode? Of course, you know. Um, so, this brewery, The Vale, it, it's, a, it's a, a solid brewery. Uh, where they're from escapes me, and I, and I should know that. It is not local, though. They're out of Virginia. Uh, a hazy IPA. It's called Crucial Crucial Taunt Taunt. Uh, definitely a, a good sipper here as uh, I'm almost finished with it now with the interview, but solid beer. First time I had it, uh, definitely buy it again. Nice. Well, Brandon, appreciate you joining the Cincy Slang and Bearcat podcast today. Thanks for uh, picking up where Hummer's leaving off. And uh, we'll be talking soon, buddy. I appreciate it, man. I had a good time. Go Bearcats. Cheers.